0: you're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Thankful for that truth as it leads really right into what well, we'll be preaching this morning and uh, leads also ...connects to the, the phrase on the, on the back of the gift that we're giving... ...it may not be what you do, it may be who you raise. Uh, my wife and I have five children... ...and uh, raging in age from six to sixteen. And We don't have a huge family, but when they were younger... ...I could just say this, there were definitely times that... ...it felt overwhelming, especially the younger they are. When you have younger children, uh, children addition no longer applies. And by that I mean it's about mo- multiplication... So when you have two children and another one comes along, it doesn't feel like you now have three. It feels like you now have six. That's kind of how it works, at least in our opinion. And that's why I say when you have children, it's about multiplication, not addition. Uh, And that's how it can feel sometimes. I'm not discounting the joy that comes with parenting. I'm talking about the energy that it requires. Uh, We had our first two about 13 and a half months apart, I think. And we look back now and we're thinking, I don't even know how you survived that. I mean, some of you have had children even closer to that. And, and my, my heart goes out to you and you deserve a medal. Let me just say that. You know, let me say most people that we encounter are positive about children when we're in public. You know, I, most people when we, when my wife would go to the store when the girls were little and um, she would, you know, they'd all be, have long hair and they'd have their pink stuff on. And they have their long skirts, and people. It would take the store trip would take twice as long because everyone wants to stop and and talk to these four little girls that are, that are just cute. Now, let me just say, by having Jace is much easier than the girls. Um, you put him in a ball cap and a pair of jeans, dirty or not, and that's all he needs. You're good to go. Getting a girl, little girls ready is like solving a Rubik's cube. That's that was what my experience was, especially their hair. Now, I love the responses, though, that you get from people when you're in public with small children. They say things like, wow, you have your hands full, and that phrase can be translated, why would you do that to yourself? (laughs) It's really what they mean. When people say, goodness, are they all yours? And I always wanted to say, no, we just walk around and find the cute ones whose parents aren't watching, and we just take them. You know, of course they're ours. (laughs) as harmless as most of those statements are, they can make parents, especially moms, sometimes feel guilty about that stage of life. And it's likely not going to get better in this culture. You know, we live in a culture that for the last couple of generations has attempted to diminish the value of a mother raising children. It seems like American culture has done everything it can to erase the biblical and traditional roles that men and women have historically assumed. And Rather than embrace those roles, our country is attempting to uh, redefine them or even completely set them or cast them aside. And and part of that has been the effort, uh, and I want you to hear me out, I'm not saying anything I don't think too controversial if you'll hear me out, but there's been an effort for women trying to be equal with men in in every way, and and the feminist movement's done a good job of convincing people women shouldn't be stuck at home keeping a house. And I, and I know that's controversial to say something like that, you know, but that the, the, the movement or, and the mindset in much of our culture is that women sh- uh, should be working the same jobs as the men and having equal or greater authority in the family unit and in society in general. And now listen, I am in no way advocating the thought that women are less valuable than men. And the men of our church would say amen to that, I guarantee it. Um, That's not what we're saying. I'm not saying they should be in the background, that they should be seen and not heard. That's not my point at all. Don't misinterpret what I'm saying. What I'm saying is how unfortunate it is that as our cultural mindset has shifted, we have seen a diminished value placed on the role of a mother raising her children. And if you don't believe it, uh, try convincing a group of young female college students at your average public university that they should set aside their degree plan and career path and instead work to stay at home and raise children. Now, it used to be that that concept was what most young women wanted to do. That was what many of them aspired to. And now if you were to go and you were to tell that to uh, a, a group of young ladies at a public university, it I would not be received very well. I, I mean, if you were to say that a woman's highest calling is to be at home and... ...raise children and provide for the needs of her family... ...you might would be called backwards or misogynistic or even worse. So because in all the efforts for women to become equal with men in every way... ...the role that a mother plays in raising children... ...has increasingly lost its perceived value. So I'm not standing up here and I'm not saying... ...that a young woman should never go to college and get a degree. Don't, don't misinterpret what I'm saying. I'm not saying that a young woman should not aspire to get a job... and. ...and work a job and then if she's qualified for that job... ...that she shouldn't make what she deserves to make. That's not my point today. My point is that in such an effort to make everything equal... ...then the role of a mother raising children has been diminished. So you see what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that it's bad for those things to happen. I'm just saying that an effect of those things... ...is that in some ways, even in our culture and society... uh, ...people look at a mother staying home raising her children... ...as uh, being less than desirable. Well, that's, that's, you shouldn't have to do that. And, or maybe you would only do that... ...if you couldn't really find something else to do. And, you know, compared to the lucrative college majors... ...and career paths, being a stay-at-home mom... ...sometimes is looked at settling for less. You know, many factors are here. I think of three. The desire to be equal with men in every way. And, you know, what, what they've missed... ...by attempting to become equals... ...is that their roles were never less important. The role of a woman, you know, the the woman or the women that say... ...we want to be equal in every way... ...what they they fail to realize is that their role that they were playing... ...was not less valuable than a man's. It was equally important than a man's, or to a man's. So the role of a mother at home was never less valuable to God... God doesn't pre- teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that. It's just a different role than a man. So, our culture has said and begun to place more value on money or power. And they say that's the nobler endeavor than being a mother. Um, but I would beg to differ biblically. The Bible never says that a woman is less than a man, they're equal in God's eyes, and their roles are just as important. Our culture has shifted. And because our culture has shifted, then the mindsets of many in our culture have shifted as well. So that's one reason that maybe our culture would say, well, you know, these, it's less than. But the, the, another reason is the diminished perceived value of a child. You know, it's no accident that a, nearly 50 years ago, our country legalized abortion, thus making a child a choice, and we see where we are now. It transformed a child from a valued life to an inconvenience. I mean, no wonder the view of a mother has diminished because the view of a child has diminished. A child is no longer considered viable until, until they're born and in many places in our country, that can happen right up until they're born. So the value of a child has been diminished and therefore, I believe, the value of, a mother, of mothering and raising children has been diminished. Another reason that it's been diminished is our culture is increasingly self-focused. You know, no one wants to devote themselves to someone else. We live in a culture, it's all about me, me, me. The social media age. So why would you set your own dreams aside for the benefit of someone else? We've all become selfish. Many have become selfish people. And so the view of, of raising someone and devoting your life for someone else has been diminished because it's all about us. It's all about me. Don't do anything that gets in the way of me following my dreams or making it big. And all of those things have contributed to the perception of a mother becoming less important or valuable or desirable. We could dig at these all day for weeks and never reach the bottom. But let me just say this. Motherhood is not, nor has it ever been viewed as something lesser to God. It's not unimportant to God. It's not a less than role to play, it's not the rock bottom, it's not the least desirable career path, and I I know not every lady in here gets to be a mother for one reason or another, and I know there are mothers that that can't devote their time full time to their children, that's not even what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the general consensus in our culture that a mother raising children is a less than career path that is not biblical thinking, and it's not the way God looks at it. It's not a plan B. And mothers today, never let anyone tell you that what you do is plan B. It's not. There are a couple of big reasons for this, and you could start with the Bible. You could look at Proverbs 31 uh, about the virtuous woman. If you doubt um, how valuable God views of the role of a woman in a family and in a culture... Psalm 127 and 3 says, Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. It's a good verse to combat those that say a child is a choice. The Bible very clearly in Psalm 127 says, The fruit of the womb is his reward. That life in that womb is your reward. Children are a blessing. It is a blessing to get to have children according to the Bible. Ephesians 6 says, honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. It refers to to the, the Ten Commandments about honoring your father and mother. If you don't think that God honors the role of a mother, why would he say in the Ten Commandments, honor thy father and thy mother? They're equal. I mean, different roles, but equal in God's eyes, as valuable as each other in God's eyes. Isaiah 66 says, "...as one whom his mother comforteth, so will I comfort you, and ye shall be comforted in Jerusalem." You, know, you think that God views a woman as lesser than, or the role of a mother as lesser than? God even compares the, the nature, the, the comfort that a mother can provide a child. He even says, that's the kind of comfort I can provide you. So even he says that characteristics of a mother are something that, that he wants to portray to his children... Titus chapter 2, the aged women likewise... ...that they be in behavior as becometh holiness... ...not false accusers, not given to much wine... ...teachers of good things... ...that they may teach the young women to be sober... ...to love their husbands, to, to love their children... ...to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home. God is clearly defining that the roles of a mother are important... ...and a mother should not look at what she does as less than valuable... She should embrace those roles, not as a plan B, but as an important contributor, not only to her family, but also to society. It's not plan B, moms. And if I didn't tell you anything else today, we could stop there and say, God, God loves what you're doing. He values what you're doing. He values the role of a mother and a wife at home, and I'm thankful for it. I know this isn't maybe even very popular ...in our culture. I know it's not politically correct... ...in some circles, but moms... ...what you're doing is virtuous. You know, you won't find anywhere... ...that God says it's plan B. So in, in another reason... ...moms shouldn't let... ...you shouldn't let someone tell you what you do is not important. Some of the greatest difference makers... ...the world has ever known admit... ...they owe much to the influence of their mother... George Washington said, my mother was the most beautiful woman I ever saw. All I am I owe to my mother. I attribute all my success in life to the moral, intellectual, and physical education I received from her. Abraham Lincoln said, I remember my mother's prayers, and they have always followed me. They have clung to me all my life. All that I am and hope to be I owe to my angel mother. I wish I could write that eloquently about my mother. About mothers, the following has been said. C.S. Lewis said, "...children are not a distraction for more important work. They are the most important work." Billy Graham said, "...only God himself fully appreciates the influence of a Christian mother... ...and the molding of character in her children." Andy Stanley, he's the son of the famed preacher and orator Charles Stanley... ...he actually wrote the quote, or said the quote... ...that I put on the back of the candy today. "...your greatest contribution... To the kingdom of God might not be something you do, but someone you raise. And I love that statement. I love that phrase. Because honestly, even as a father, I'm supposed to be the one doing. But honestly, I wouldn't mind giving my life. And at the end of my life, or maybe even when I get to heaven, realizing that my greatest contribution was not just the money I made or the things that I accomplished, ...but a child that I was able to raise in my home... ...that went on to do things far greater than I ever even got to do... ...as a dad even, that, that inspires me. That moves me. That excites me about the possibilities. I'm okay with that. I'm okay if my greatest contribution is someone that comes through my home... that isn't me. I love the quote and because it helps parents to see our efforts are not in vain... The blood, the sweat, and the tears... ...and the moments of feeling overwhelmed are worth it... ...because your efforts could produce something... ...that extends far beyond the reach of your own life. Your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God... ...might not be something you do, but someone you raise. And this sounds strangely close... ...to the story of a mother most of us know about... ...even if we're not too familiar with her name in Exodus 2. See, when we get to the book of Exodus the Jews find themselves in a bad spot. If you know anything about Exodus chapter 2, you know that the history of the nation of Israel, uh, to this point, God had preserved Israel through Joseph, and they are now dwelling in Egypt, but things are not easy there in Egypt, because after Joseph died, and after the Egyptian leaders died, a new leadership comes up that doesn't know Joseph, it says in Exodus chapter 1. So the Jews were living, and they they were thriving, and things were good, But then the leadership passed away and they owed so much to Joseph because he preserved the nation. Really, he preserved the region of that world and he made Egypt the power in that part of the world. So they owed much to Joseph's foresight and leadership. But when he died, the new Pharaoh comes up. He doesn't know Joseph. All he sees is this race of people, these Jewish people living in Egypt and he starts looking around and realizing there's more of them than there are of us. They're multiplying. I mean, they're expanding. And he starts to get worried about it. The new king became so afraid of the Jews in the land that he, his fear led to two attempts to, to suppress Israel. His attempt, number one, was to enslave them with slavery. Look at verse 11 of chapter 1. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses, But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. Kind of reminds me of Father Abraham and many sons. They're just multiplying and multiplying. Like I said earlier, having children can be about multiplication, not addition. Well, that's what's happening. They're multiplying here, and they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And so, verse 13, the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick And in all manner of service in the field, all their service when they made them serve was with rigor. So you see that the Pharaoh looks around and he says, okay, there's lots of Jews here. There are a lot of folks from Israel. And and if we're not careful, they will rise up because they're so great in number. And they'll join in with our enemies and they'll take us down. So we've we've got to put our foot down. And so they enslaved the Jews. And they made them serve, the Bible says, with rigor. And their life was terrible and not easy. But in the attempt to suppress Israel, they just multiplied all the more. Look at verse 15. So here's the second attempt. So, and the king of Egypt spake to the the Hebrew midwives... ...of which the name of the one was Shiphrah, and the name of the other was Puah. And he said, when ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stools. If it be a son, then ye shall kill them. But if it be a daughter, then, ye, then shall she live. So here's the second attempt from Pharaoh to suppress Israel. The first was slavery. The second is a slaughter. So he says, it's not working to enslave them. So what we will do is every time they have a child that is a boy, we will take that child and we will kill them. I mean he was talking about genocide. He's talking about killing uh, these poor innocent children. And it would have happened, except that the midwives that he spoke with intervened. And they, weren't, they would not kill the, the, the Hebrew boys like Pharaoh had told them to. So the king's not happy with the midwives, so he calls them back in. He says, now, why aren't you doing what we asked them to? And, and the midwives say, well, you know, these mamas are good at having babies. They say, they're they're not like the the Egyptians, they're lively. When they start having a baby, the baby's out and everything's done before we even get there. I mean, that's the kind of delivery we all would hope for, right? You don't even have to really, I mean, before you even, you know, can kind of really know what's happening, here it comes. You know, for those of you that had children in cars and things, you're thinking it's not quite the way it should be, but, you know, I mean, they're so lively. Now, we know the midwives were simply protecting God's people. Um, by being righteous in doing it, but the king is not happy with it. And so he gets upset and, and he says, well, you know, we've got to take care of this, but it doesn't change anything. They just continue to exponentially multiply more and more babies. And Pharaoh finally says, any child, any boy that is born, throw that baby into the river. You know, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? We don't value the life of a baby, get rid of them. For fear of the Jews, discard the babies. That's what Pharaoh said. Today, well, for fear of disrupting my life, for fear of disrupting my career, discard the babies. Now, I love how God works because in this desperately wicked situation, a very important boy is born. A man named Amram, there in verse one of chapter two, and we're not told their names here, but we find it out later. There's a man named Amram, and his wife is named Jochebed. Jochebed. They conceive a child and they name him Moses. And listen, he becomes one of the greatest men and leaders the world has ever seen. Not just in Jewish history, but in all of history. This young boy grows up to do what others would say would be impossible. He, he spends 40 years with Pharaoh's daughter. And after 40 years, he, he uh, kills an Egyptian and has to go to the wilderness. So after another 40 years, now he's 80 years, years old. He comes back and is an 80-year-old man... And he goes to Pharaoh, a new Pharaoh, and he tells him, let my people go. And then he leads millions of Jews out of Egypt through the wilderness for 40 more years to the brink of the promised land right before they're supposed to go in. You talk about a great leader. He's not just one of the great Bible leaders. He's one of the great world leaders of all time. He leads this huge nation of unhappy refugees to the brink of Canaan. He's the one that God chose, not only that, he chose God, God chose him to receive the Ten Commandments. So you're talking about the man, the one man, that God said, you are the one, I want you to come up to the mountain, and I'm going to give you the Ten Commandments, which are the law of the nation. That Moses got to be that guy. Not only that, but if you read the first five books of the Bible, and you read the title above the book title, it says the second book of Moses, on my page it does, Above the book of Exodus, it says the second book of Moses called Exodus. The first five books of the Bible, called the Pentateuch, were written by Moses' hand. I mean, this is a guy that accomplished a lot for God. I mean, he wasn't perfect, but he's the central figure of the Old Testament. He's referred to by many by Christ and the New Testament writers because of his involvement in the law. Secular historians will tell you there may not be a more effective leader in world history. He had a lot going for him. When he, I mean, when he was young, we saw in verse 2 there that when she saw, his mother saw that he was a goodly child. Acts 7 says he was exceeding fair. So he was one of those babies that should be, you know, on, on the, the Gerber baby bottle or baby food picture. He's one of those babies that when you looked at him, you just could I mean, he's exceedingly fair. There was something about him that just drew you in. And I'm sure that that had something to do with Pharaoh's daughter having compassion on him because he was a beautiful child. Uh, We also see here, what else did he have going for him? Where he had God's protection. We we read through this passage and we think, God has to be working through this. God has to be the one making these things happen. God's providence was there. Pharaoh's daughter had pity. He cried at the right time. His sister just happened to be there watching the whole thing unfold. And his sister was able to go get Jochebed, Moses' own mother, to come and become Moses' nurse. And then not only that, uh, Pharaoh's daughter said, I'll even pay you to nurse this child. So here's the enemy paying God's people, God's woman, Jochebed, to raise her own son. And it's amazing the providence of God that we see in this story. And not only that, Moses had all these things going for him, but when he was old enough, he moved into the palace with Pharaoh's daughter, he became her daughter, and he was raised in the best, with the best education With all the luxuries of life, Acts 7 said he was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. Moses was no slouch. He he became a great man. He seemed destined for greatness. But even with all of those things, we get down to it now, with all of those things working to his advantage, I want you to consider where it started. I want you to consider what happened at the beginning. Because all the things that Moses did and all the privileges that Moses had and all the ways that God brought him up to be the right man for that job to lead Israel and write the, New Te- the Old Testament books and to take the Ten Commandments, all of those things would have been for naught if he hadn't had parents, specifically a mother who was willing to go to great lengths for their child. His father had plenty to do with the story as well. Hebrews 11 says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents. So that verse says his parents, but Exodus 2 strictly says, Jochebed, his mother, took these steps. And it's not a conflict. It simply means that his father and his mother were working together to protect their child. And I would imagine that his father was a slave. I would imagine that his father worked all day, and so his mother was the one that was left to carry out the plans of the father. And by the way, moms in here, that's a good philosophy to have. Parents should work together to have a philosophy in raising their children. And it's very often that the dad is not the one at home all day and the mother is the one that is faithfully carrying out the parenting philosophies of that family. And it's, good, it's a good reminder, mothers and fathers... That that we have a role to play. Both of us have a role to play. And it's a mom, very often it comes down during the day to the mom's execution of the family plan. And that's what happens with Jochebed. She's the one putting her life at risk. She's the one taking these steps. Moses had a mother whose faith and actions preserved his life so that he could be someday in a position to do great things for God. God used his mother in the early days to, pre- to begin to prepare him to do something great. And so it is because of that that I say today, don't discount the importance of what you're doing, moms. Jochebed was far less interested in her own things than she was protecting and preserving the life of her baby. She saw in Moses a child with potential. She saw in Moses someone God could use for his glory... He wasn't a castaway. He, he wasn't a less than. He was not a plan B. She took her role as mother seriously and God used her to influence a baby that would grow up and just not just change a company. He didn't just grow up and get rich. He didn't just grow up and get famous. He grew up and he changed history. He advanced God's kingdom. And Moses, and, I, and think about this too, Moses along with his siblings, Aaron and Miriam are very key figures in Israel's history during the Exodus. And Jacobed was the mother to all of them. All three instrumental leaders. And you talk about children who grew up to make a difference. You talk about children uh, who, who were great contributions. Moses, Aaron, and Miriam are unrivaled in terms of sibling dynasties. And they all came from one family. Jacobed's children has caused many commentators, as I read about her this week... They describe her as the woman whose children became great. The woman whose children became great. She was less interested in what she did than she was in who she was raising. And today I want to look at two things that Jochebed did that I think every mother and father, but especially today every mother could learn from. And that first is that she protected Moses from the world. She protected Moses from the world. See Egypt always represents the, book, the world in the Bible and they wanted to destroy her child. So Satan in this worldly, listen, Satan in this worldly culture have a target on our children. 1 Peter 5a says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And you know that is not just talking about Adults. It's not just talking about the old folks. It's not just talking about the grown-ups. It means if if you have a child that is a child of God, if you have a child in your family, you realize that Satan, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking that he may devour your children as well. Peter wasn't just writing to the grown-ups. Satan, through the world's mindsets and philosophies, wants nothing more than to capture the hearts and minds of our children. Many parents have allowed their children... To become immersed in the culture with very little concern about their child's well-being. I think about the, the role that media plays in our culture. And it's like everywhere you go, somebody's on Netflix. Everywhere. We, we've been looking at houses this week. We looked at a few houses, looking to purchase. And there are some houses, I, I mean, there's literally a TV in every single room. I mean, you've got like little girl toys and Barbies, big screen TV on the wall. Now, if you do that, I'm not trying to judge you, but you've got to be careful. Because the world's mentality and a worldly philosophy and and, and and not to sound weird or creepy or strange today, but Satan has an influence and he can influence our children through the things that they let into their eyes, into their, their ears and the things that they watch and listen to and the friends that they're around. And if they're, not, if they're not around people that are thinking biblically or if their influences aren't biblical in their mindsets, they will not grow up thinking biblically. And some of the things that children are exposed to on their phones today are more than I ever saw growing up as a teenager. And yet plenty of parents, not only do they have televisions in every room and, and unfettered access to those things, but they'll give their children from the early age, I think the average age now is nine or ten, And not just phones, but smartphones. With no filter. So whatever can come through the internet, a child as a nine-year-old or ten-year-old can get on their phone. And you tell me that's healthy. You can't tell me that Satan can't use those things to entrap and enslave the minds of our children. And I'm not trying to have conspiracy theories here today... or or anything like that, but I can remember things that as a nine or ten year old boy that I saw, that are still vivid in my memory. Yet in our culture, there's never been easier access to media and Satan's mindset is coming through those shows. You can't tell me that he's not influencing the the filmmakers and the the television show makers. They're not thinking biblically. They have a, a, a mindset that is not helping our children be more like Christ. These wicked lifestyles and the and the pleasures of sin, we wonder why our children have an appetite for worldly things. Listen, we've got to protect our children and Christian families, mothers, dads here today, it's time to build an ark. It's time to build an ark when she could not longer hide him. She took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and pitch and put the child therein and laid it in the flags by the river's edge, the river's brink. She daubed it with slime and pitch. I don't, know, I don't even know what all that means. It means her hands probably got dirty, got muddy. It, what, it, what, it's saying, what I'm saying is it takes work, and sometimes it, you get dirty. It takes effort to protect our children from the world's influence. It's not easy. You have to combat the culture. You have to combat a screen at every turn. It takes parents checking phones. Or maybe not even giving their children a phone. And I know that's inconvenient and I know that's not always easy, uh, but it takes time and care and attention to protect their minds and protect their lives and to protect their purity. And I like how it says she laid it in the flags by the river's brink. You know what's interesting is that she didn't throw Moses out into the middle of the river, she put him at the river's brink. She didn't toss Moses out in the middle where he had no protection. He was still within her reach. He was by the brink, but he was in the water. I think many people make the mistake of throwing their children just right into the middle of the world's river without a connection to their hearts. And if there's not a connection to their heart, and we just kind of throw them out there to let them feel their way, they'll drift on along. We cannot assume that our children, if they don't have a connection to our hearts, as soon as we place them in the river, that they won't just float away. You know, we can't keep our children out of the water forever, but we can build arcs in our homes and, and in our families. And even, uh, even in this church, we can build some arcs of protection that will help keep the water out of the ark. It'll help protect, keep the water out of their lives. Maybe it means they don't have a TV in their room. That's not the end of the world. Maybe it means that as a parent, you don't just give your child an iPod or a, an iPhone with, a, with a, a credit card attached and they can just download whatever music they want. I mean, I've got girls, they're 16 and 15 and they have iPods and we don't, they can't purchase music without me or mom doing it for them. They can't browse the internet without mom or dad um, enabling them to, they can't do it. We check their phones and people say, well, children need privacy and teenagers need privacy. Hey, I understand that. But I just want you to go back and remember what you were like when you were a teenager. How safe was it for you to just have all the privacy you needed? So just just be mindful. Listen, parents, we're trying to build an ark. Not because we want our children to be backwards or antisocial or strange. We're trying to build an ark so they can be pure before the God of heaven. We're protecting them from the world's influence. And I know it may sound crazy, and I know it may sound out there, and it may sound excessive. But listen, my children's lives and their purity are worth whatever effort it takes. Even if it's slime and it's pitch, and it takes me time to take those bulrushes and weave that basket around their lives. I have to be selective because my children are worth the protection. The people they spend around the time that they spend around folks, I, even if I have to be the bad guy, it's worth it to me. Whatever we do, teach them principles to live by so they know what they're doing it or why they're doing it and, and why they should do it. And, and then they, when they go out into the river, they can make their own decisions. So build an ark, not just because you know this is the ark, build an ark with reasons. Help your children to know the whys behind your rules, not just the what's. Because if they'll know the wise, then when they're out in that river on their own, they can still make the decision because you taught them a principle. Because you taught them a verse. Moms, that child you're raising is worth the effort to protect their hearts and minds. And Jochebed went to great lengths to protect her son. Satan and the world are waging a war. What are you doing to protect your children and prepare them for the water? It's worth it. It's a lot of work, but I'm telling you, it's worth it. So Jochebed can teach us moms, teach the moms, not us moms, teach the moms to protect their children from the world. Jochebed can also teach moms to plant godly seeds in their hearts. See, look at verses 7 through 9, chapter 2, verse 7. It says, Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for thee? I love how his sister steps in. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. And the maid went and called called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, take to, to Jochebed, take this child away, nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. Now, you talk about God's providence. Moses' own mother became his nurse. And not only that, she got paid for it. Now, we can't say how long... That Moses was nursed by his mother. But history makes it clear that nursing used to last much longer than what we we're used to. And, I, and, and we don't know for sure, but it could have been a few years for sure, that Moses was under the influence of his own mother. And, and, I want to, and, and we can't say that for sure, so I don't want to be dogmatic. But what I do want to pay attention to is Moses' actions as an adult. That can help us make some conclusions. Look at verse 11. And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown. Remember, he had just been raised with an Egyptian education. But it says when he was grown, that he went out into his brethren and looked on their burdens, and he spied an Egyptian spiting in Hebrew one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way, and when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now I'm not adding commentary to say whether or not Moses was right. ...or wrong in slaying an Egyptian. I don't believe this was the right move for Moses. He tried to become the deliverer for, e, for Israel... ...before he, it was his time to be their deliverer. Uh, but I can say this... ...something in Moses let him know... ...that these were his brothers. There were seeds planted... ...in Moses' life... ...and I like to think that they were planted... ...when he was a baby... ...when he was a child... ...when he was being nursed and raised by his mother. There were seeds being planted... About God being the most important person in your life. And these are your brethren, and you need to love God and you need to love His people. Because when Moses was grown and he had the opportunity to take matters into his own hand, he saw what, his brother, what was happening to his brothers. He saw what was happening to His people, the Bible says. And he was angry when he saw an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, and he took matters into his own hands and killed him. Moses knew. Moses was aware of his, uh, of, his, of his nationality. Moses was aware of where he came from. Acts 7 says when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Somebody planted seeds in his heart about God and God's people. Verse 25 of Acts 7 says, He supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them. Not only was Moses uh, sympathetic to the children of Israel, but he thought, I could deliver them. Moses was thinking about how God might use him to deliver God's people. Moses knew who he was. Moses was aware of where he came from. And he had it in his mind to be the deliverer. He tried it too early as a 40-year-old. But he wanted to deliver God's people. They were his brothers. Where's this going? Well, when you consider that Jochebed nursed Moses as a child... I believe seeds were planted. That he grew up with a heart for God and God's people, even with an Egyptian education, can only be the result of seeds planted. That he would have faith instead of fear, just like his mom and dad, when they did what they did, those were planted seeds. That he would choose God over the world, planted seeds. The fact that Moses turned out to love God, even though he was raised as an Egyptian, has to mean that someone in his life... Planted seeds that took root, and when it came time to bear fruit, they did. Let me just tell you, mothers, Jochebed planted seeds in the the heart of Moses, and you are planting seeds every day in your children. You're not just protecting them, you're planting you're putting seeds in their hearts, you're watering those seeds, you're nurturing those seeds, and you plant and water, and you plant and water, and for years you never maybe even see the results you hope for, but listen, don't give up because someday the fruit will show up. Proverbs 22, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. You know, there's no promise of fruit right away, you know, two moms out there who are toiling, and They're striving and it just seems like you're never making any headway. You have promises from God. You may not even know it for a while. Jochebed, Jacobed likely never saw the fruit in her son's life, in Moses' life. It takes time. And that slime and pitch and your hands are dirty and and you're working and your efforts are there. the, The same lessons you repeat every day over and over and over again. You get up the next day and you do it again. I heard somebody say, when they had their fourth child, what it was like. And he said, well, imagine you're drowning and someone hands you a baby. <laughs> you know, honestly, can't it feel like that sometimes? You're drowning. And yet, here's another one. They're multiplying. And they just, it's just like, it's a never-ending process. And you think it's not worth it and you can't see the end. But you have to take God at his word and know that when you plant seeds, if you plant the right seeds, someday they'll come to fruition. We may not all be mothers, and some of us may have children that are grown, but we can all plant seeds. It's the work of a mother to plant seeds in hearts. I think about the gospel seeds planted in the hearts of children. Right back here in this room over here and along this, in the classes along here, gospel seeds are being planted in children's hearts even right now in, in this building. Moms, you're planting gospel seeds in your children's hearts. And it may seem hard and it may not seem like it's worth it, and you may not see the end of it, but someday when that child receives Jesus Christ as their Savior, you think, okay, that was worth it. And then when they get to be a little bit older, after all those lessons and after the teenage years, or when their brains leak out of their ears, you don't know if you're getting through, and yet eventually you look and say, wow, they love God. They're serving God, they have a heart for God. And you think about all those seeds that were planted when they were young, and you think, oh, that was worth it. Listen, we're planting seeds. We're all seed planters. Everybody in this church family, we're planting seeds in all these children. There's children everywhere around here. And you have an opportunity to plant seeds, uh, even if you don't have children of your own, or even if your children are grown. We're all working together. Moms, there are two very important things every mother can do. You can protect their hearts, and you can plant some seeds. And Jochebed protected her son from the destructive desires of the world and then she planted all the she- seeds she could in him for those first few years with the hopes that someday he would bear fruit. And those early investments didn't pay off for 80 years. See, I'm not trying to discourage you, I'm trying to give you hope. Jochebed didn't see the fruit of her labor. The fruit of her labor didn't come to fruition for 80 years. Then Moses walked up to Pharaoh in Egypt one day 80 years later and said, let my people go. We see those planted seeds and that protective mama. It paid off in a son that made a huge difference for God. Mothers, your biggest contribution to the kingdom may not be what you do. It may end up being who you raise. Look in the face of that child and think, this could be the next Moses. This could be the next Esther. This could be the next Peter. This could be the next Ruth, this could be the next Paul, this could be the next Mary, the mother of Jesus, this could be the next Joseph, this could be the next Daniel. God may want them to make that kind of an impact. So allow that thought to affect how you raise your, chi- your children. Consider that God wants to do something great with them and then protect them like they are Moses. Plant seeds like they are Moses. Plant seeds like they are Paul. Protect them like they are Joseph. Because that could be who God has being raised in your household. So just keep protecting and planting. And you have a great promise that God someday blesses your efforts. You may not ever be called the mother whose children became great. But if your children just grow up to love God with all their heart and please Him, then you are a mother whose child became great. You don't know who you're raising. And what they might become. So protect and plant like they're a Moses. And who knows, they just might turn out to be one. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.